Okay, let's pray. Father, I ask for that wonderful mercy that you allow us to continue to worship you over your word. Give us ears, give us hearts to hear and to love, to enjoy what we see of your beauty, what we experience of your presence. For Lord Jesus, you have made God available to sinners to enjoy forever. Help me unfold that truth this morning to the glory of your holy name. Amen. This is week five in the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And I keep getting the question every week. Are we going to the fall? We're going to talk about the fall, right? Because we talked about creation a few weeks back. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. And we have paused in order to reflect on some very in, important questions of who is God and why did He create? And we are still not to the Garden of Eden and the fall, that will be in two weeks, God willing. Because this morning and next week, in light of what we have seen about God and who He is, His Holy Trinity and infinitely complete and contented and happy, and then, therefore, why would He create, which we saw last week, in order to not get something, that he didn't have, but to overflow with what he eternally is, which is benevolent love toward the creature. We've got to ask this question now over the next two weeks. And that is, how are we, the creature, human beings, made in his image, to respond to that reality? First, how are we to respond vertically to God? Secondly, which will be next week, how are we to respond to one another? That's where we're going over the next two weeks. Then we will continue through Genesis and we will see the fall and onward. And so the answer to those two questions, though, that's why the last couple weeks are very important and they're up, audible, on the website, because the answer to how we respond vertically to God and horizontally to one another is essentially reflecting how God responds to God. Loving Himself, worshiping Himself in the Son and the Son and the Father. And then He creates, going outward, the way we put it last week, I want to summarize it, is God loves Himself with need love in order to get. He loves us with benevolent love, and that's what will be reflected in us. We are to love God, not with benevolent love, 
He's not needy, but with need love, like we love oxygen. If you remember, need love would be like, I love this peanut butter and jelly sandwich because I haven't eaten in five days. I love it. I need it. I consume it. I eat it. We love with a need to get from the sandwich. Then you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's another person who hasn't eaten in five days, and they're very hungry. And I have an abundance of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches now. You go love them, not by eating them, but by giving of your overflow to them. And our meeting, our need love in God, which is this morning, we will see is the foundation for the ability in some measure called the fruit of the Spirit in this life as yet sinners to love our neighbor as ourself, to overflow. Both of these, our need love and our benevolent love toward others, are reflected in Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So this morning, the first, vertically, what does it mean to love God? In light of who God is and in light of His purpose for creation to glorify Himself, we start with the reality that we are by definition dependent. And thus we were created in His image, finite, independent, in order to seek our need love our happiness, our, our fullness in Him. In that which is the infinite well of joy, peace, contentment, happiness. Whatever word's going to help you grasp that. And that happens to be God Himself. So I want to start this way. We haven't gotten to the fall yet in this series. We will, but we are all fallen here. And what I'm going to say is true before the fall. And it's true after the fall. We were created for God. Or we were created as creatures in order to be happy. And the only way to be truly and forever through the future happy is found in God. At the core of the human being, that is what God created. At the core of our souls, as Adam would walk in 
cool of the day, happiness is found in the presence of the Lord. But there was the fall. And therefore, that round peg in the soul of every man, woman, and child can only be fit with a round peg. That round peg came out, and now there's a big gaping hole in the fall. And we sinners attempt to fill that hole with square pegs and triangles and octagons and all kinds of things that don't fit it. So let's go back in. God created us in His image, meaning with the capability and the purpose to know and to delight or will to delight in that which is most delightful. Sin came, and thus we have all turned away from the only object that fits our desperate need for real happiness. And thus we have now this God-shaped vacuum, as Blaise Pascal essentially put it just there, and we seek to fill it as sinners in all the wrong places. There's nothing that fills it finitely. Not drugs, not alcohol, not money, not things, not spouses, not children. Nothing. And therefore, the very first reason we should constantly, us in here, your believer, constantly, daily seek to fill that, that, that constant need within us to be met. We should seek it in God. The very first reason is because we have a God-shaped vacuum and nothing else will truly fill it. Note, this means this. God created us. And He is our end, our goal, the joy itself personified in the Spirit. To seek God, we are not to ever do it as a means to some other end. If you find God, He'll make your marriage better. He very well may, but wrong motive. If you find God, He'll make you more prosperous. No, like many persecuted Christians today, as we just heard in the prayer, you might find death, imprisonment, torture. It means God is not a means to an end. He is the end. The very happiness and pleasure we seek for an eternity of tomorrows is God Himself. And so the second reason, therefore, we should go after Him with all of our hearts is really good news. It's we, if you've been paying attention the last few weeks, it means that God takes great pleasure in meeting that need, love. It is the essence of His joy in the Holy Trinity, 
to overflow it and to meet the need of human beings. Even of us who have sinned so greatly against Him. This is how Paul writes it in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. Strange. Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our God-shaped vacuum. Hearts through the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Holy Spirit, as we have seen, is the very embodiment of the joy that the Father has in the Son from all eternity and the Son in the Father. And God wants to satisfy the need, love of His people with that joy, who is the Holy Spirit. And that should drive us. This week when you sin, it should drive you to repentance, a joyful repentance. It should drive you. He really wants my happiness forever. We should believe the Bible. We should believe texts like this. When Paul writes in Romans 15, 13, Oh, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're very familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, but don't let it just fly by you. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit living within you, God's very love for God dwelling in you, is love and joy and peace and patience. Where the psalmist cries out in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life in order to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. You remember Moses had to leave the tabernacle and go deal with the people? And then the text says, his servant, Joshua, nah, that's your job, Moses. He would stay in that tent where the presence of God came down. Didn't want to leave it. At the end of the first century, Jesus writes some letters to different churches. And in it, He says this to His people. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will 
come in to him and eat with him and him or her with me. That's God's heart. That's the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And thus we should deeply desire to seek our need love in Him. For He's not just willing. It is the essence of Him glorifying Himself in us. The very essence of the gospel of Jesus is that it's God's great joy to meet your deepest needs for happiness forever in Him. And that's what Jesus came to secure on the cross by removing the barrier that stood between every one of us and the Godhead. And He removed it. And he also purchased that very joy personified in the Spirit to come change our hearts through new birth and see and believe. So we have a God-shaped vacuum. Secondly, we should seek him with all of our heart because it is God's great joy to give himself to us. And the third reason we should constantly pursue our need love in God is because God guarantees we shall be satisfied forever. Do you remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him or her will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So think about it. What he's saying. I think it's clear. Jesus cannot be meaning when you drink the water I give, your thirst is destroyed. That would be strange because then you would never desire or feel a need of His water, of God, of the Spirit again. And that is not God's goal for us. He doesn't want self-sufficient, independent Christians the text says, when you drink, when the water, the Spirit, comes into you, new birth, it becomes a spring, a well, in us. That's what he's saying. We'll become in Him a spring. A spring satisfies thirst not by removing the need for the water, but by always being there whenever we're thirsty. Again and again and again and again. 
So, for, for example, in the Christian life, because this is the very dynamic of it, I mean, I get thirsty for water, amazing, every day. And I sin every day. My heart gets hard every day. My selfishness takes precedent during moments, periods of the day. Thirst. Where do you go? You go to the well. You listen to God's Word. And you go, oh, let the Holy Spirit rise up within me. Let these words become my heart in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence. Oh, I ought to pray probably. I have to go into His presence. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's God's heart. We the creature are made to find the essence of that joy in Him and in His presence forever. And so we should seek not our need, love for constant fullness in Him and Him alone because we have a God-shaped vacuum because God really is happy to give it and He has secured it and guaranteed it forever. So, what does that mean now in our daily lives as believers who are yet sinners, yet justified before God, who are not the same as before new birth, but we're still sinners, we're different, we have the ability to actually love Him, to drink of His water, and we know there's a vacuum in us. That's what the essence of sin is. Seeking love or fulfillment or joy or satisfaction with replacements for God. That's idolatry. What do we do? We turn to God daily throughout the day with need love. Not to give to Him doesn't need anything from you. But you turn to Him in order to get. And anything else is sinful. If you go to God for any other reason than the joy, the happiness the fullness of what He promises to be for you is the taint of sin within us. Jesus summarized it all in a very short little parable this way. In Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. It's not his field, though. He found the treasure. And then he covered it back up 
And then, in his joy over that find, he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys the field. That's a Christian. When a person, we fallen creatures born into this world, separated from God under God's holy, perfect wrath, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. But when a person gets reconnected with the Holy Trinity in and through Christ, it means Christ to them has become the treasure of eternal joy to them. Those new, new, they're brand new affections, they are the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God Himself, who is the personification of joy in God. And so if you think about that, I'm going to offer this, because hopefully, maybe some of you do it, or need to be reminded. But in joy, he went and sold everything. Okay. That means for our lives, which are filled with all kinds of circumstances every day, every week, every month, and tears and crying or joy and happiness in this world we live in. But at the core of our being through it all, it means that joy, that joy in God is like a barometer of my faith. Where's my trust in God right now in this area or that? But Paul said, I hope if I stay on, if I don't go ahead and die, I'll come to you, Philippian church. And he says, I want to come to you and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. The fruit of joy comes from our trusting, our, that's faith, in God. In what? In His Word. In His promises. Particular circumstances in our lives. Particular promises. As Paul writes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in trusting in Him. In your believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Check your faith, your trusting in Him, by your contentment in Him, by your joy in Him. I don't mean, yay, Jesus. <laughs> I'm really joyful with Sunday morning. I don't mean that. There can be a joy in the midst of emotional pain. And physical pain and setbacks. I mean the otherworldly joy. 
the Trinitarian joy. I mean like what Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situations I am in, there to be content. He learned something as a Christian. He says, I know how to be brought low. That means kind of crushed, smashed. You been there? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. A danger in abounding here in this world. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, because I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. At the core of the Christian life is a fight. It's a fight for joy. Or as Paul said, it's a fight of faith. I have fought the fight. I've kept the faith. It's a fight to trust in God's promises for us. And thus in them, now, as we have our anchor rooted in the future hope of the resurrection, in the glorification which will come one day, it roots our joy ultimately there in the midst of all of life down here. So say you start to lose your joy because anxiety is just overwhelming your heart, your soul, your thoughts over some hard decision and circumstance in life and you don't know which way to go, what do you do? You prayerfully go to God. His Word. His written Word. So you, you would turn to James chapter 1 and hear the Word of the Lord speak to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. Do it and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Trust him. Or you're stressed out about money situations. Either because you have so many idolatrous toys and you want more and I've got to be more happy, or you just want to pay the mortgage or, or your rent, or feed your children, or buy books, and... and, and your joy, joy, haven't seen joy in four and a half months. What do you do as a Christian? You absorb God's promise to you prayerfully. In Hebrews 13, 5-6, keep your life free from the love of money. Worship of money. Money is your end. 
of happiness and joy. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How do I obey that promise? I mean, excuse me, command. By what He says next, the promise. Do this because He has said, Pedro, Jeannie, Justin, I will never leave you, nor I ever forsake you. And the writer says, so we can confidently say, and he quotes the psalm, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me in the light of eternity? I added the last part because it's what he's getting at. Or maybe you haven't seen joy in a long time because you just can't get over the sin of that other person towards you. And bitterness has a root just growing, growing, growing. What do you do? You fight. You fight to trust God's promise in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And you sit and you rest. And it you just realize, no, duh. I was under God's wrath. I was a child of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. And He reached down and saved me forgave me, justified me. Oh, but for the grace and the mercy of God, I can trust Him. He's merciful and He's just. And all things will work out under God's wrath or under His mercy because His wrath was poured out on a substitute Christ for the person. So we trust Him and find rest, peace. And so this dynamic then, I'm just give you a few illustrations. Walking with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking in the fruit of the Spirit, fighting the fight of faith. This means that the very essence of faith cannot be separated from repentance. Because if I obey God's command here, based upon His promise, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, I have to stop acting the way I've been acting the last eight hours and turn and trust Him. 
Or, or when Jesus came on the scene, we read this in Mark chapter 1. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There are not two means of salvation, faith, and this other thing called repentance. There's only one. It's coming to Him. It's like a coin. You got heads and you got tails. There's only one coin. On one side is faith. I believe, I trust that. The other side is repentance because I just found myself repenting by definition of trusting in Him. See, be, before our need love was met in Christ initially, we were looking to all kinds of other things. Some for drugs and alcohol, money-making, illicit sex, prestige, arrogance, whatever it was. And then the light of the Gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ was mercifully shined, not just upon our minds, but upon our hearts. And then we just, that's, who wants that anymore? Faith at its core means a 180 degree turn. Listen to Jesus' sober words on this from Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You cannot serve, I want you to think about that, God and money in the same way and at the same time. I'm, I think that's what he means. You can't do it. Okay, what does that mean? Obviously, there's an analogy about the way we human beings serve money, worldly goods, that, that is analogous to the way we ought to serve God. I, I'm, I'm reading Jesus. So think about what does He mean by serve here? What does that mean? What does He mean by master? You can have two masters. Either money's your master or God's your, your master. So, think with me. Does Jesus mean to say something like, you have to stop serving money like an employee serves their employer. An employer has needs. That's why they hire people. It's not benevolence. It's, we need, we want to make more money, we're going to hire people, we're going to recompense you, so please meet our need and we will pay you at the end because they have need. Is that what he means? Do people serve money, like my master money, like a butler serving uh, his master? 
Uh, may I take your laundry, Mr. Money? May I go to the cleaners for you? You want me to go shopping for you? What need do you have? That's absurd. So that, that, that's not what Jesus means, like serve and help out money. So how do we serve money? We ponder how to get it. We ponder what it can give to us. We might sacrifice everything in life, our family, our marriages, and everything, and, and work 108 hours a week just because we want three luxury cars. So we're enslaved to money and with the happiness we think that it will give to us. So we ponder how to invest and make use of compound interest over the long haul and what mutual funds or particular stocks we had invested. We're enslaved. We spend time in inordinate amounts because that's where my happiness is if everything goes good there. In other words, we serve money by trying to position our own lives in such a way where money and things meet our needs. Does that make sense? That's what we do. So we don't meet money's needs. We seek to figure out how money can meet more and more of our needs. And so that means that faith at its core is not separated from obedience. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. You need to turn from trusting in money to meet your need, love, and thus turn to God and trust in God's commands and promises. Position yourself in such a way that you benefit from what the Creator of the universe is freely offering to you. what you do. Matthew, you're cheating your fellow human beings because that's part of what tax collector was as a Jew. There, he bought his franchise. And you've got to stop extorting money from them. Come unto me, Matthew, and I will give you rest for your soul. He's either going to come or he's going to be like the rich young ruler and he says, I can't come. You're leaving one and you're going to the other. So it's obedience. That's what he means by serve. Obedience to the laws of money or obedience to what God promises to be for you through and in Jesus Christ. It's an obedience. Yeah, obeying commands. Come to me. It's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's a command. Walk this way. Stop doing that. That's a command. It's an obedience, but it's not the obedience that an employee shows to their employer meeting their need. It's the obedience that every one of us at one time or another show towards our doctors, a physician, 
You're going to die, but we can kill this bacteria. Just here's the prescription. Go get it filled. Take this for 12 straight days. Make sure you eat them all. And when you obey, do you think of yourself as, wow, I, I obeyed the command. I obeyed him. I really met my doctor's needs. Really provided a service for him. No. He's there for your happiness of living longer. He has the expertise. You go to Him and thus tell me how to get eternal life. And then when He gives the prescription, whether it's Jesus saying, go sell all you have, He couldn't do it. Or the doctor giving you the prescription, Thank you very much. And if you walk out the door and you crumble it up and you throw it in the garbage can, you are showing that you don't trust Him. If you go get it filled, you're showing that you do. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. You can't look to money and look to God at the same time and in the same way to meet your need, love. So when people, there's an old saying, when people, what they look to, to bring them their satisfaction, whether it's some people only look one hour in advance, some look to all eternity. But either way, what one, the given moment, is looking to bring them the happiness that they are seeking, that's what they worship at the moment. What they worship, they inevitably Serve it. And you can't serve God and money. We human beings, we have started with, we have this God-shaped vacuum. Seeking to get our, remember the coined term by my professor Dan Fuller, need love met. And so we'll look to money or alcohol or sinful sex, or marriage, or children, or any other created thing, or God to fill it. And this is faith. That's what this sermon is this morning. How shall we respond in light of who God is? and that He created for the purpose of extending His glory? Answer, trusting in Him is the source of your eternal joy and happiness. And that, called faith, is the righteous response of a creature to the Creator. Important because in two weeks when we get to the fall, we're going to, this is why I'm doing this. There's got to be some foundational things said about who God is and who we are in order to really grasp what happened in the fall. So what we've seen over the last few weeks is that the eternally happy, self-sufficient, absolutely complete one and only God created everything that's not God, and particularly the human being in his own image. 
in order <coughs> to extend His glory. And therefore it would be sinful for His creature to come to Him from any other motive different than the motive to be filled and made happy in His presence. The Hebrew writer said it this way in Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it's impossible to please God because whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and must believe that He rewards those who seek Him. And so that means... The response of faith, of trust, of dependence in the human being before the fall. And now, when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, come to Him, that response of faith is not merely an intellectual decision for Christ. It is seeing Him. Important but not enough. And admiring or loving Him whom we see in the Gospel. And thus arriving home at the end, the goal of finding our satisfaction in Him. We taste of it here, truly, but never fully. There, at Jesus' second coming, there will be no more hindrance. Our sin nature will be obliterated and will be utterly free to will God fully. So one more shot as I close to grasp what I've been trying to do the last few weeks. The ultimate goal of God in creating everything is He did it for His glory. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, glorification of His saints, everything is foundationally flowing from His purpose to glorify Himself. Thus we pull back. So what does that mean? At the very core of God, forget, apart from creation, internally, that is God's glory. And it consists at its core of His understanding and His will. His knowing Himself, the Father and the Son, Son and the Father. And not just knowing, but His will to worship, love what He knows. Then God chose to go outward, externally to create the human being as a reflection of Himself, yet finite. Made in His own image. Thus the human being at 
minimum with that ability to know, to understand, and to will, to love, to willingly delight in what we understand about God. So God created and He communicates the knowledge of Himself through creation and most particularly through revelation, the Holy Scripture, so that we will know Him. But that's not it. It's not the whole. That, 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 that is necessary, not sufficient. This is the glory of the salvation in Jesus Christ. He not only created the human being to know, but then He also takes of His will of loving Himself personified in the Holy Spirit and communicates His very eternal joy to us by infusing us with His joy in the person of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, not only knowing God's greatness, but also tasting it and delighting in it is wrapped up in what Paul means in Thessalonians. He will come to be glorified on that day in His saints. So last statement. When you think about this, it means that God's seeking to uphold and to extend His glory in everything that He does, first and foremost. And His concern for us, His people whom He has called. His concern for our eternal happiness. God's glory, our eternal happiness, are in no way in contradiction. They are wrapped up in the same end or goal. Or they're two sides of the same coin. So no wonder Jesus cried out to the crowds. And to everyone in here, all you who are burdened, sense of vacuum in your life, whole in your heart, Come unto me, and I'll give you rest. Take, take my direction, my, my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light, and my glory will be extended in your eternal happiness. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you are good. First, Paul tells us, you did not spare your own son, but you gave him and you delivered him up in our place on a bloody cross and upon whom you poured out your justice against every sinner who will come to him. Through Him you defeated the great enemy, death, by raising Him from the dead as the first fruits. And oh, that day will come. 
when your son will return and raise to everlasting immortal humanity forever to enjoy you and in your glory and to grow in it unendingly. You are good. Oh, as Paul said, the, the, the immeasurable, almost unthinkable riches of your glory that you will show to us in kindness on that day through all eternity. May it be the power and the strength of us, your people, to glorify your name in our homes, our workplaces, our lives, this week in this earth. Amen. Amen.